Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 266 of the podcast for October 25th, 2016. My guest today is Karen Ross. She is co-author of the new book uh, written with um, Jeffrey Liker. It's called The Toyota Way to Service Excellence, Lean Transformation and Service Organizations. Now, I have an extra copy of the book to give away. Um, the publisher sent me two copies. I'm not sure if that was a, a defect in their process or uh, if they meant for that, but I'm going to give one away. So if you come to leanblog.org slash 266, uh, and if you want to tweet about the podcast, click on the link that's there in the post. Um, that will make you eligible to be the recipient of the book. So Karen first learned about lean and applied lean in companies like Paychex. She was working in call center environments, Zurich Insurance, Liberty Mutual, and she's worked with um, other service sector companies as a consultant. So in this episode, we're gonna talk about the book, um, The Important Applications of Lean in Service Settings. You know, Karen says, delighting customers requires something different than what she describes as a mechanistic lean implementation approach, and, and I agree. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Uh, again, check out her book, The Toyota Way to Service Excellence. Uh, it's available now. Karen, hi. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for inviting me. So I think we've got a lot to talk about today, about your book and uh, all sorts of topics related to, to lean and service organizations. But you know, maybe start off and, and introduce yourself um, to the listeners. It would be good to hear about your background. And you know, I think I always ask people, how did you get introduced to Lean? Sure, thanks for asking. My name is Karen Ross and I'm a Lean Services Consultant. And um, I actually started to learn Lean working as a customer service representative at, at a third party payroll processing company. And I actually, um, didn't know that I was setting out to learn lean, but um, I took care of 300 customers and processed their payroll, and I had to do a lot of manual entry. And as you can imagine, there were a lot of errors that were made on payrolls, and uh, customers weren't very happy because uh, although it may not be a life and death situation, as in healthcare, if you get an error on your payroll check, you certainly feel like it's a life and death situation. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, it's important, yes. It really is. And, of course, the people around me who were doing the work, I was working in a branch office of this payroll processing company, none of them were very happy either. It was a very stressful job. Nobody wants to answer the phone and hear um, an unhappy customer. That doesn't make a very good day for the people who are doing the work either. Yeah. So um, I thought to myself, there really has to be a better way of doing this. And through a somewhat roundabout way, I actually heard the word Kaizen. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard it before, and my husband is a professor of Asian studies, so I called him up and I said, do you think that um, you could go to the library and see if there's uh, any book on this subject, Kaizen? And he came home with Masaka Imai's book, Kaizen, right. which I read. And I said, this is exactly what we need to do hmm. to fix the problems that we're having. So I convinced the manager of the branch of the payroll company that I was working in to let me start a committee to improve processes and customer satisfaction using 
what I'd read in Masaka Imai's book and some other books that I started reading, and he agreed. And so all of us workers who were on the front line doing customer service, customer service representatives, uh, the people who packed the payrolls, the receptionists, we all got together and we started actually solving problems for customers using what I was reading in a variety of books. And I was actually really only one step ahead of everybody every yeah. time. But I was reading, we were applying, and um, in a very short while, we actually improved customer satisfaction, reduced defects, and saved the branch uh, almost $200,000. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And at that point, I had the good fortune to find out that the company actually had a small process improvement department. And when the person who was the head of that department heard about what I was doing, she called me up and said, would you actually like help in doing this? And that, <laughs> That's better than hearing, whoa, yeah, that wasn't authorized by our lean department. <laughs> That's correct. And she listened to my story and honestly, she said, would you like me to just come out there and help you? And teach you. And that's how I met the real Leslie Hinkler, who um, appears as the heroine in uh, the book of the short story that runs through the book and also appears in chapter eight um, in one of the uh, stories that we actually tell in the book. So I will say that after Leslie um, helped me, I made a lot more progress. And one of the things Leslie suggested, she had a whole reading list set out for me as well as suggesting that I um, follow this fabulous blog called Lean Blog. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so yeah. I started actually reading your blog as one of uh, the first regular um, lean yeah. readings that I would be doing. And on August 2nd, 2010, I read um, How to Design Poor Service, Expect 100% Utilization of People or Resources. And working in a call center, you can imagine this was just like, okay, I understand this absolutely. So I'm going to say thank you very much for being uh, also such a fabulous influence on my thinking oh, well, over well, the years. Thank you. But uh, yeah, I appreciate that. And no, it's great that when uh, you, you first approached your manager there, uh, that that he that the answer was yes, go ahead and work on improving processes. I mean, in, in your work as you've been out there now as a, a consultant, um, do you, do you run across organizations where leaders would say no to their employees and their ideas or, or feel threatened in, in one way or another? I'm, I'm curious if you run across scenarios where employees don't get that same positive response that you got. Um, I'm going to say yes and no. The more common experience I have is that I actually run across employees who um, don't even feel like they have the ability to suggest that they might actually yeah. do something like that, right? So they might have an idea and say, okay, we would like to try this or we'd like to learn this, but unfortunately they're so used to being in a command and control environment mm -hmm. and being told what to do that they don't even bring the idea up. Yeah. And I think that's the more unfortunate and dangerous um, position that we're in. Yeah, I think there's a, a, a really sad and, and sort of common um, dynamic. I've, I've learned the phrase uh, learned helplessness, where you know uh, people are, you know, become uh, demoralized by that environment, where maybe at some point they tried to speak up and they got a bad response or you know, they're, they're definitely not being asked to speak up. And so people kind of learn just to 
keep their head down and, and fight through the day, even if they're unhappy with the circumstances, sort of as you described earlier from your, your story about being a frontline employee in that organization. Right. And I'm going to agree with you. It's uh, learned helplessness and something that I also um, think of as the I can't have it. Mm -hmm. Right. If you go out onto almost any service room floor and you listen to the conversations that service representatives are having with people, how many times do you actually hear them say, of course, we can help you with that. Let's figure out how. More often we hear, mm. I can't. Yeah. I can't do this because the computer system doesn't allow me to do it. And I think um, for a variety of reasons, we've created a culture of I can't. So people don't bring their ideas. They even think they're not creative and that they don't have ideas. And really the whole basis, when you think about it, of lean or Toyota way, going all the way back to Sakichi Toyota, is creativity and ingenuity. Right. right. And trying things out and inventing. So how do we create those conditions for people in doing the work instead of the conditions we have now? Yeah. And I think, you know, as we, we know, and we're probably, you know, with the, the listeners of this podcast preaching to the choir, realizing you yeah. know, that, that people do have the ability, but they've been convinced uh, otherwise, unfortunately, over time. I mean, I saw that even, you know, we're talking today, you know, your work in service organizations, but that was certainly a problem in manufacturing and that was part of the culture when I was at General Motors that people had been essentially beaten down over time and and they've been had been told you know that they you know I, they've been told quite directly sometimes that they they didn't you know the managers felt strongly they didn't have ideas and you know so that's that's it's good when we can start turning that around in in different organizations yes absolutely how many times have you heard um, don't bring me a problem, bring me your solution, right? And so right. then when you come forward with the solution and the answer is no, we can't do that, right? Mm -hmm. People don't want to bring forward their ideas anymore. And I think in, I think you put it very well, learned helplessness, right? right? Or enforced helplessness. Oh, right. Mandated helplessness. <laughs> helplessness. Maybe that's a yeah. new a phrase to coin, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I'm curious then to hear a little bit about the evolution of your career then. So you learned about Lean, you were working there in that organization. I'm sure there were a number of steps, you know, to, to where you are today, working as a consultant, having written the book. What, what else happened then uh, in, in your own story? Right. So um, after I uh, was working with Leslie for about a year and um, I was improving processes in the branch and it branched out to the whole uh, Midwestern area of the company, I had the good fortune to meet Jeff Laker. Mm. And yep. uh, I met him simply through corresponding and asking him questions about the Toyota way to continuous improvement, which I was probably the first reader of. I think I got it first from Amazon. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he was very kind and generous to uh, teach me many things as well. At a certain point, I really decided that I didn't want to um, only work processing people's payrolls. So I went off and I started to work at a variety of different companies, so I learned um, lean in other human resource areas in insurance. Um, and one of the wonderful things is that I found that there's a lot of generosity of people who have a lot of experience and know much more in the lean community. So I've been extremely fortunate um, to have come across Jeff and to mm -hmm. have come across Leslie, and they've just made many opportunities for me to apply my learning. Um, and that is how actually just by doing, 
mm-hmm. <laughs> I've ended up where I am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, learning by doing, that's, I think, <laughs> the right way to go about it. And, um, you know, I, you know, I, I hear people in, in healthcare sometimes, they, they'll use the phrase or they'll, they'll say, you know, lean theory or lean is a theory. I'm like, well, no, it's, it's, it's a quite practical <laughs> um, set of, of methods and approaches. And even the philosophy is, I think, very uh, practical and, and pragmatic and can be applied in, in very concrete ways. So yeah, learning by doing. No, no offense to our friends like Jeff and, you know, he's been on the podcast and Steve Spear and others who come at this from uh, an academic uh, background. I think even those academics who work with Lean uh, are a lot more uh, practical and real world based than we might see in a lot of other fields. And Bob Emiliani, who's a, a professor out in Connecticut, and I've probably inadvertently um, insulted other academics like your husband. I apologize for that, but um, but no, there's no, no need for you to apologize for for learning by doing. That's great. Um, right, and I'm going to say that um, all of my learning by doing also was based on taking theory that I read in books. Right, because still, if if you could see here, I have a huge, huge, huge lean library, right, and a library of a variety of other things, and I simply read those things. And then I applied them to what I was doing at the time, right? And mm-hmm. learned from doing it. And it worked better once I had people to coach and guide me. That really helped. But the whole thing came from turning theory into practice. And again, hearkening back to you know the roots of uh, the Toyota production system, Sakichi Toyota learned how to do things by doing them, right? He had a theory of what to do and then he applied it. And I think that uh, a lot of times people are afraid to start doing anything in lean because they think, oh, I, I don't know enough, right? All you need to do is really start. Yes. <laughs> Try it out and start, right? Well, I think, and, and I see this in, in healthcare a lot where I think there's sort of the, um, the, the, the expert trap where people don't want to do something unless they are going to do it perfectly. I'm like, well, that that sets the bar too high. I mean, learning by doing with a coach is probably less frustrating and 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 more productive. But um, yeah, I, I I understand that dynamic where I'm, a lot of times I'm convincing people do some small tests of change, do a pilot somewhere, try some things, see what works. You know, it's not an excuse to not plan, but at some point you got to do. And then study, yep. then adjust, right? Yep, absolutely. And I'm going to say that uh, there's really a theme that runs through the book is learning by doing with a coach to help and guide you. Because lots of times, um, and this is my own, really harkens back to my own personal experience. There's a difference between practice and correct practice, mm-hmm. right? Um, practice makes permanent. Yeah. <laughs> we like to say so. It can make permanent a good habit or can make permanent um, uh, not so good habit. So if you have a coach and someone who um, has experienced before, and that's my favorite translation of the word sensei, one who's gone before, right? Yes, yep, yep. Then that person can help guide you um, to practice correctly. So build in quality at the source, then you're not um, having to unlearn. Right. Yeah. And learn again and have that rework. So that's actually a theme that goes through Toyota Way to Service Excellence is learn with a coach yeah. to help you. And what are your thoughts on trying to strike the balance? You know, we talk about learn by doing and we realize 
we learn by making mistakes. Um, so where's that balance between if, if you were a sensei to somebody or if, if you were uh, being coached by somebody, what, I mean, what, what types of mistakes should you let people make? You know, we can't try to avoid all mistakes, but there's some mistakes that might really uh, kill a lean transformation process, right? Where, where's that balance? Right. So I'm going to say, um, Leslie, who is a fabulous, fabulous teacher and sensei, really taught me in a very traditional way, right? So she gave me a challenge and then uh, let me struggle and muddle through. And when I was really frustrated, you know, I could pull the end on court and uh, <laughs> right. yeah, ask call for help. She yeah. was in, Yes, she was in New York State. I was in uh, <laughs> Illinois. Um, but the thing is, I always knew that no matter what, she was not going to let me fail in any kind of way that was going to be detrimental to me or to the business, right? Mm -hmm. um, she was going to be responsible for the work that I was doing. So her watchful eye actually gave me the courage to try. And um, she was always one step ahead in her thinking and her understanding of where I should be. And I think that's very important when we talk about coaching, what the role of that person is. So there were many times in ways that were um, not going to be detrimental to anything other than perhaps my own ego mm -hmm. <laughs> and learning, right? Um, that absolutely she let me go down the wrong track far enough so that I learned to self-correct, right? But not so that anything was going to be detrimental. A lot of the processes we worked on had federal regulation, right, or state regulation. Yeah. Um, we couldn't be out of compliance for anything like that. Leslie's goal was not to teach me a set of tools. Her goal was to teach me how to think. Mm, so the only yep. answer ever was, it depends, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm guilty of that. People <laughs> get annoyed by that sometimes, but. <laughs> right, but what it did was, first of all, it did teach me how to think, right? And it allowed me to have the confidence to know that in whatever situation it is, I could go and I could see and I could think and I could consider Right. And I think this is the opposite of what we were talking about, um, learned or mandated helplessness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's how do you teach someone to be an independent, well, critical thinker? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And confident in that ability. Well, and I think that's that's tough for people. And I think a good coach helps build confidence, because I think with that learned helplessness, that that makes people um, they, they get into a trap where they say, well, just tell me the answer and say, well, no, I want you to figure it out. And that's scary. And I think that's where, you know, even going back to Amai, as you mentioned earlier in his book, Kaizen, mm -hmm. there's this idea of, of baby steps and people build confidence by by, you know, not giving them too big of a challenge, something that's that's challenging, but not disheartening. Correct. And I think that um, also. We are, in coaching, you know, and in thinking of that really traditional model, we have the idea of challenge. But I think sometimes we miss out on what I call nurture, right? Because mm -hmm. I always knew that Leslie, if I needed her, was there. One day I had worked myself up into a frenzy of something that turned out to be nothing. But I called her. And I never called, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I like to struggle. 
I never called. If she ever saw my number on her phone, she actually would answer. So <laughs> when she answered, she said to me, be quick, you have two minutes. I was in a me- I'm in a meeting with senior vice presidents, but when I saw your number, I knew you needed me. So I knew that I wasn't going to be anywhere, right? That I was going to be in a situation where I was really going to fail. I could mm. really call for a lifeline. And I think we miss that in coaching too. We push people out into the unknown zone, into their uncomfortable zone, into the learning zone. But we yep. have to, as coaches, <laughs> stay there with them, right? Yeah. And we really only can learn through doing, right? I can read a book of theory. I could read all of those books, but until I actually applied them and tried them out and found out what happened, I couldn't be confident. So the only way, in fact, I believe that a person can gain confidence is through doing. And um, your coach, your sensei, your teacher, you have to borrow your courage and confidence from them while you're learning, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I think, you know, back to the point of learning from experience and you don't want to just repeat the wrong things over and over again. Dr. Deming had an old expression, something about, you know, uh, not all experience is helpful. Sometimes people have 25 (laughs) years of experience doing the wrong things or leading the wrong way. And sometimes that's not their fault, but... You know, it, it, it does get in the way of, of embracing new approaches. Right. Practice makes permanent, correct? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so but I'm, I'm curious to kind of delve into, um, we kind of uh, got to the topic around some of the mistakes that people might make without a coach or without somebody guiding them or helping them. Um, this is something I've, I've blogged about and sometimes I, I get... Uh, it's, I rant and rave, but you know things that are done in the name of lean that discourage and demoralize people instead of being helpful. I'm, I'm curious if, if there are some things that you see um, happening out there that you sort of would try to coach people away from. Sure, absolutely. And um, the first big one is that lean is some kind of set of tools mm-hmm. that there is a recipe to apply And when you apply those tools, you're going to get a lean transformation. Yeah. So, um, you know, do 5S first, then you have to do a value stream map, right? (laughs) All of those things that are very prescriptive in nature. Right. I think that a problem is that people have lost the idea that lean transformation isn't and end in itself, right? Right. That serving customers and developing people through challenge and nurture so that they can continuously improve for customers so that their customers are satisfied and delighted and the business that they work for fulfills its long-term purpose, that's the goal. Yeah, right? that's well said, yeah. Yes, and I think it's so easy to fall into the trap and say, okay, um, we're going to be lean. What's the purpose? Why right. do you want to be lean for? And then you get all these tools and then you get all kinds of mechanistic thinking. Mm-hmm. And when we have mechanistic thinking, even, we love to talk about organizations in 
mechanistic terms. We mm-hmm. function like a well-oiled machine, right? right. Yeah, that's the old oh. habit before lean, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah right. we're going to install a lean management uh-huh. system. Right. You cannot install a lean management system <laughs> right. like like you're changing an engine on a car, yeah. right? Or you're putting a new hard drive in your computer because our organizations are made up of human beings. Yes. Right? And our customers are human beings. And unfortunately, when you start to think of your organization in mechanistic terms as a machine, we tend to think of our customers in the same way. And when we talk about service, service actually means serving other people, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I see those really as the common problem. And again, short-term mechanistic tool-based thinking to focus on results. Let's lean out processes. And instead of how do we best serve the human beings that are our customers, so um, it makes their life better, it makes the world better, and we fulfill our purpose as an organization. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned short-term thinking. That's another old habit. Um, Dr. Deming, you know, sort of uh, railed against short-term thinking. Um, You know, principle number one in in Jeff Liker's book, The Toyota Way, of course, is making decisions. Um, based on the long-term perspective, even at the expense of the short-term. And I tell you, uh, for all of the times people reach out and ask a question along the lines of, you know, what lean tools should we use first? And I try to redirect it like you were doing there around, well, what, what are you trying to accomplish? And there's no, there's no formula. But um, I've never once had somebody reach out and say, how does our organization get better at long-term thinking? <laughs> and making decisions based on the long term. I mean, have have you seen in some of the organizations you study and and write about in the book examples of of people that have made progress well, toward long term thinking, or are they just more naturally a long term thinker? I'm going to say that a great example of that uh, of someone who I would say is a long term thinker is Richard Sheridan mm-hmm. at Menlo Innovations, right? And if you read his book Joy Inc., one of the close to the end of the book, he has a visioning exercise, right? And yep. he says, everybody should do this visioning exercise. And then he, you know, publishes, you know, what he wrote as his visioning. And I think it's really important. We're so busy and caught up in the here and now. I mean, how many times are you thinking, right? Okay, you're 20 years old. You're not thinking, oh, at 65, I'm going to retire. Better start saving. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's, I, I would say that's it. Richard Sheridan, Menlo Innovations in here. I would say that a lot of corporations, especially those that um, answer to who they believe their real customers are, their shareholders, right, rather than the customers that pay for their services and that mm-hmm. they truly serve, um, tends to be very short-term thinking. And I've um, been in many meetings in many organizations where I've heard, well, this decision was made based on what our shareholders need. Right. Mm, yeah. In, in our um, in the Toyota way to service excellence, actually, our first principle and what the book is um, grounded on as well is the philosophy of long term systems thinking. Passionately pursue purpose based mm-hmm. on your organization's guiding values. Yeah. So it, <laughs> we're in the same place where we started <laughs> telling, <laughs> suggesting to people the same thing, right? Yeah. Well, and, and Rich Sheridan, you know, uh, for those who haven't heard the episode, he was a guest 
in episode 189 of the podcast about eh, over two and a half years ago. So people can go to uh, leanblog.org slash 189. But yeah, I've had a chance to visit Menlo Innovations. Um, another company in, in Ann Arbor, uh, Zingerman's, uh, is in uh, the book. I've, I've seen uh, Ari, uh, uh, I'm going to butcher his last name, Ari, one of the co-founders of uh, Zingerman's, uh, Zwinswig. I'm Yes, and I'm not sure I will do any better. <laughs> Ari from Zingerman's. I, I saw him speak at uh, a quality conference, even though he's not a quote-unquote uh, quality guy, but that's what made him such a great speaker because he was talking about some of those same themes. I think it's interesting Menlo and Zingerman's are private companies. They don't have the same short-term Wall Street pressures that a large public corporation might face. That might be a part of it but i think a lot of it is really just the mindset and the leadership you know those those organizations zingerman's i think has a really strong dynamic it seems of, of service toward customers and service toward their employees um really really fundamental ideas right right absolutely and i think that there's um you know when we think about long-term thinking also uh there's two things to think about if you go to most companies and you go I'm going to say even most levels of management, because I've done this in a number of places, and I say, could you please tell me what your mission statement is or your purpose statement? Mm -hmm. They said, they say, well, I could go to the intranet and look it up. <laughs> it's printed on the back of my badge, perhaps. Uh, right. But is it really a very deep purpose mm -hmm. if none of your employees actually know what that is? and can say that, right? And again, when we talk about long-term thinking, it's how we get there, right? I have a saying, how we get there is as important as where we're going, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. also in the Toyota way, Jeff said, the right process produces the right result, right? Right, right? comes from Dr. Deming too, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and the thing is, we're not willing, I think, to focus on the means. In right. the West, we're very focused on the ends, yeah. right? But the right process is going to produce the right results. And Toyota yeah. Way um, yeah. and the 17 principles and the four Ps, that's really your means, right? Yeah. You have to trust that if you follow the right means and you have a strong purpose, the end is going to be right. Yeah. And um, I'm putting it on the spot a bit because we didn't really, I didn't... <laughs> throw this out as a topic or a question to prep for, but everything you bring up there makes me think of what's happened recently at Wells Fargo. If you followed that story, um, their, their, their recent scandal. Right. And I'm going to tell you, actually, I, I have not. Well, in, in a nutshell, I mean, it's a story of, you know, you've got a large bank that to your point around purpose, it seemed like the purpose became making money. And the purpose was translated. Uh, there was a goal set that um, tellers and, and people working in the bank were under extreme pressure to hit a goal of every customer having eight different accounts or financial instruments. And people were not measuring or managing the process. In fact, I saw a quote from the CEO who's now been um, cast aside, who said, basically, I, I don't care about process. I'm like, well, then <laughs> that was uh, a recipe for people uh, fudging the numbers, uh, distorting the system, creating uh, fake accounts, unauthorized accounts, um, 
you know, became, you know, if you if you dig into that scandal, um, I think you would look and say, well, gosh, this was really quite predictable because they weren't doing the things that that you've been talking about or that a lean organization would be talking about. Right. And that goes right back to uh, Dr. Deming as mm -hmm. well. Right. Don't manage based on targets because people will reach the target. But they're going to destroy the organization while yep. they're doing it, right? And, and I think that what happened—that's what happened at Wells Fargo and the CEO and others. You know, they fired you know five thousand employees who were all really unethical in their view. I'm like, no, the employees were doing what you were telling them to do. We're going to have this goal of eight. The CEO was saying eight is great. I'm like, well, there's there's a rational basis for setting a, a goal that people thought was unrealistic and unreasonable. And I mean, I'm curious, you know, call centers, um, you know, when you work in call centers, what would happen if you set an unreasonable target for the average call length and you were to right. beat people up over that and fire them for not hitting that target? What would happen? Right. And honestly, those things do happen. A really interesting story that we uh, actually tell in the book is from Zingerman's. So Zingerman's has a call center, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And unlike most call centers whose metrics are to reduce the amount of time that call center reps spend on the phone with each customer, right? So we can have yeah. more volume, more productivity. Zingerman's goal is to increase the time. And the reason that they want to increase the time is that they actually want to deeply understand their customer needs. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, they understand that when you have your customer on the phone, you are actually not only creating the value. If you're a service organization, you're creating value with your customer while you are on the phone with them, right? Yeah. It's occurring right then. But you also have an unbelievable opportunity to find out more. So um, I was visiting Zingerman's and one of the fabulous people in their call center was telling me the story. Um, oftentimes they get incorrect phone calls from people who are calling one of um, Zingerman's many other um, mm -hmm. businesses under their umbrella, right? right? And so they call the call center and of course, think of your experience with many other call centers. Many other call center reps would just simply say to you, okay, you didn't call this business, right? Hang up and call again. Mm -hmm. If you're lucky, you might get transferred <laughs> correctly the first time, right? Yeah, that happened to me earlier when I had to call a business. I ended up with somebody in the wrong state, and they said, I don't know how you got to me, but you know, <laughs> they transferred me at least. <laughs> right, but at Zingerman's, what happens is they simply answer the person's question. So yeah. they know, even though they're the mail order, every morning they talk with um, the uh, deli. Right. So they know what kind of pastries they have. So when the customer mm. actually called up and said, I need to pick up some pastry from the deli on my way to work, the call center rep at Zingerman's mail order, which is not the part of the business unit, right. that does that, asked a whole variety of questions. Is this for you personally mm -hmm. to eat? Mm -hmm. Are you driving? Are you going to eat it while you're driving? Or are you going to eat it at the office? Because, of course, if it's some sticky, gooey thing, yeah. right? Maybe someone doesn't want to eat it while they're driving. Right. Oh, do you need 12 of them, right? Because you're bringing it to the office. And so um, based on the customer's response and all of the questions that was asked, they're able to actually say, oh, 
well, we could recommend that you get this pastry or this pastry, right? And then they could actually reach out to the deli and say, oh, someone's going to be coming by with this or that. That's what service excellence is about, right? That's what focusing on what your customer needs, not on internally what we need. Well, we uh, need to reduce costs this quarter. So we need each customer service rep to be able to handle this many more calls, right? So we're going to find waste in the process and remove all the waste in the process. So we can now give you... um, Expect, you know, your call to be shorter. Oh, and we're going to have 100% utilization, oh, right? Well, because go. goodness knows we don't want a call center yeah. idle. So I imagine really, Zingerman's doesn't care as much about the utilization percentage then. Zingerman's um, is working to serve customers, right? right? And um, I would actually really encourage people to read the story in the Toyota Way to Service Excellence about this. There's a fabulous um, illustration, photographs of the visual management that they use in their call center. And they have also a process called the hot seat. Mm -hmm. So um, they know when their peak calls times are going to be. And they have a person who's just dedicated to answering the phone. If they reach the threshold of phone calls, they add another hot seat. Mm -hmm. If they reach that threshold, they add another. And then, um, of course, people get a break after two hours of being in the hot seat, you rotate off and you get to do something else. So it's very, uh, it's totally not, not as stressful for (laughs) the people who are doing the work as well. And honestly, when you think about service excellence, if you have people who are stressed and unhappy answering the phone, how happy are they going to be able to make your customers? Right. Well, and it seems like, um, yeah, uh, what I hear you saying is that Zingerman's, treats that time on the phone with the customer as an, as a gift or as an opportunity as a, as opposed to it being viewed as an obligation and an annoyance and a cost, right? Correct. And yeah. I love the way you put that. It's a gift, right? Because um, we're, as a service organization, here to serve customers. It's our joy and privilege mm-hmm. to serve customers, right? I unfortunately have um, supported many organizations, and I think uh, this is very easy to happen in service organizations where you don't actually see your customer in person very often. Mm -hmm. That is very easy to stop thinking about people as human beings, Mm -hmm. right? And so you spend eight hours a day with your colleagues, and there's a lot of internal stuff that has to get done, whether it really does or whether it really doesn't is another matter, right? But you become very internally focused. And all of those things become very much more important because you see them, because you see your manager who says, well, where's the report of this or that, right? I need that, and we're going to uh, mark you for that on your performance review this year, how timely you were Mm -hmm. in handling all those extra things, right? That actually then what happens, instead of remembering that your customer calling you is a gift, you're like, well, how can they be interrupting my work? <laughs> Service work. means, <laughs> that's it. Service means focusing on other people, yeah. right? That is what service is. It is about that external focus on the customer. And that's actually our second point in the book is deeply understand your customer. Yeah. Right? Well, and it, it seems like that idea of service extends 
to leadership. When you, you see the strong elements of servant leadership in um, the, the Toyota approach and great lean organizations and, and different industries, managers and leaders, I think, either forget or they were never taught that their purpose is to serve their employees when people usually view, view that the other way. The employees are here uh, to serve me, the leader. Absolutely. And I think an example of that, that oftentimes if you go to Toyota, you'll see the org chart is upside down, yeah. right? Right. With the leader on the bottom and the people who are doing the work at the top because they're closest to the customer. Um, oftentimes I've been in many organizations that I go, you know, that have installed lean management systems and now everybody huddles. And sometimes people don't like this very much and they say, well, it's actually taking me away from my work, um, you know, to satisfy customers. Right. And I say, I, I have a different perspective. I say, you have been given a gift from your company because you have now been given 15 minutes of your day to focus on the customer, right? Yeah. What do your customers need from you today? How can you better serve them today and make sure that all the work that needs to be done for them needs to be done? Yeah. I said, this is your gift. You need to think about it as your well, gift because there are many organizations that do not allow their employees this kind of gift, right? Right. Or I think it's the same idea of a manager. Oh, I don't have time to coach people in Kaizen. Yeah, it's, I think there's there's a direct parallel. You should view that as a gift. We're, 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 executives are encouraging you, giving you time to spend figuring out what your employees need. To the back to the point you made earlier, if you help take care of the employees, they can take care of the customers. We see that in in healthcare and so many other settings. How important that principle is. Yes, and it goes right back to the beginning of our conversation. Um, you know about learned or mandated helplessness. The simple fact is in a service organization, you need people to be able to solve problems and think critically on their feet because when they are in contact with the customer, they're making value with them, right? Yeah. So if you as a manager aren't actually dedicating a good part of your time to helping your people become better critical thinkers and problem solvers, yeah. the simple fact is they're not going to be able to serve your customers any better. And all you're going to ever hear when you walk yeah. around the service floor is, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Yeah. And then your customers are going to go somewhere else because guess what? No customer ever wants to hear the words, I yeah. can't. Well, and, and it goes back even to Henry Ford. And, and Henry Ford Health System is uh, is is highlighted uh, in the book, another great uh, Michigan company. I'm, I'm, I'm being proud about my home state there. <laughs> uh, but... Henry Ford said something to the effect of if you believe you can or cannot do something, you're probably right. And yeah, I mean, believing you can do something is, is probably not wholly sufficient. I mean, I can't sit here and say, I believe I can fly. I'm not going to go jump, jump off the roof of my house. That's not enough. But when it comes to workplace improvement, I think there's, there's uh, that either self-fulfilling positive uh, prophecy of my employees have ideas and they'll work with me to make things better for customers in the organization. Or there's the self-defeating prophecy of Ugh, we don't have time. My employees don't care. It won't make a difference. It's sad when, when people have that I can't mindset. I agree. And actually, that's my favorite Henry Ford quote, whether you think you can or whether you think you can. 
you're right. And I'm going to say that many things, and and we talk about the book, this in the book as well, um, and it really falls into some of my brother's kata area, right, is to set a vision for where you're going and a challenge. So um, right now, we may not know how to um, process all payroll checks with no defects, right? That's in the future. Yeah. We don't know how to get there. Right now, we have to say, I can't. However, what we can do is progressively, iteratively, through doing and removing obstacles, learn how to get there. And that develops our people, right? And it develops their critical thinking skills. And sooner or later, we find we've reached our goal, right? Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly it. Five years ago, six years ago now, um, I hadn't heard the word lean, kaizen, right? Yeah. One might think that five years later, it might be surprising that I might write a book on that subject, <laughs> right? Yeah. And practice that. Because the thing is to figure out how, yeah. right? And that's what customers want to hear. They want us to figure out how. And honestly, if we don't figure out how, whether we're service organizations or manufacturing organizations, someone else is going to figure out how. Yeah. <laughs> Right? And then guess where our customers are going? <laughs> right. They're going right over to there. So it really behooves us if we would like mm. to fulfill our long-term purpose, and even if we would actually like to make money for the next quarter, is to make sure that all of us have the skills and tools and support right, to use the 17 principles, really, of the Toyota Way to Service Excellence, because all of those lean tools and principles and practices. That's your how. That's the means to go from, I can't do this now, to I can, right? Mm, flow, yeah. flow is the ideal. How yeah. do we get there? Right, right. Flow is the ideal. Zero defects is the ideal. Ideal. Let's, let's keep working at that. So, well, you, right. you mentioned the book, and, and to wrap things up, I did want to come back to um, you know, talking more directly about the book and the story behind the book. You mentioned your library, and it's the same in my office, my library. There are lots of <laughs> lots of books already written about lean, and I'm not saying you shouldn't have written it, but there are lots of books out there. The question is more about well, how did the book come to be, right? What- sure. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, I think Jeff and I, at a certain point, were both overwhelmed by um, a lot of mechanistic lean. Mm-hmm. you know, that we heard about, and um, especially because I've never worked in manufacturing, as I said, I've only worked in services, right. right? And I think one week, both Jeff and I got about six um, questions from people saying, can you recommend a really good book about lean in services? Mm-hmm. And neither of us could. Mm-hmm. So then we thought, why don't we write one? Why yeah. don't we write one from the perspective of lean as a Toyota way, right? Holistic, systematic, not tool-based. If, um, you know, how to teach people the principles, right? And the philosophy and how to teach them to work with their organization to think about what that long-term purpose is and what serving customers is really all about, right? Yeah. And, um, then they can apply to services. I will say, as I said, I've never worked in manufacturing. There was never a time 
in which I read Toyota Way or any other book that I thought this doesn't apply in services. Lean is more mm -hmm. important in servicing than manufacturing mm -hmm. because we can't see many of the things that are happening in services. All of the visual management, it helps us see. And as you make my, things visual, yes. <laughs> make things visual of things you couldn't see. And um, because Lean is really, service is about people, right? right? And so um, if we focus on the customer, we're actually focused on people. Right. So Lean much more important in services well, <laughs> than it is in manufacturing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And uh, it's great to, 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 that you've written a book that is is oriented for for people in service industries they still may you know my my concern you know oh, they're still going to cringe at the toyota thing because in healthcare i hear time and time again somebody thinks they're being really smart by pointing out what well, you know patients are not cars <laughs> I'm like, yes agreed like i i do i do i, I must look dumb sometimes <laughs> and people so point I out do of course, patients a, are not cars. But um, go go ahead. Sorry. I took a group. Of, I took a group of folks from uh, the insurance industry to visit Toyota, right? Mm -hmm. And again, we always get you know we're not making widgets. We don't have short yeah. cycle times. Things aren't repetitive. And um, I don't think many people who have been who, who necessarily work in you know this kind of service industry have ever gone to see manufacturing. Right. Right. They usually have not. And when they went, you know what they said? They said, this is unbelievably complicated. Yeah. <laughs> a car has millions of parts. It's much easier to do what we do, right? Yeah. And I think when you take people yeah. to show them, right, then you can actually dispel some of that as well. Yes. But we do make things in services, right? Well, and, and either, yeah, and we're serving people, but I'm sorry, go right. ahead. Mm -hmm. No, because think about it. If you go to a fast food restaurant, you're going to a service organization, but you get a product too. So now they have to be careful about the experience you get and they have to be careful about the product you get, right? Yep. When you fly, all you get is your experience. Mm -hmm. You're not taking home a seat of the plane, hopefully, right? right? Now you might get a cookie <laughs> when you fly. Maybe not, but in that situation, the experience better be really fabulous because that's what you're getting. Yeah. And it's not nothing. It's something. You've made something, right? Yeah. And and in healthcare, you're getting health. You're getting quality of life. And when, when people play the, well, patients aren't cars card, I, I come back to and I try to be as constructive as I can and not be snippy or snarky. But you no, know, yeah, patients are far more important than cars. And this is a matter of life and death. And we need to prevent errors and we need to create better workplaces so nurses and doctors don't quit the profession in droves. This is more important and it's all the more reason, kind of like you were saying, this this is more important in healthcare as a type of service sector than it is in manufacturing. I, I totally agree with you. Absolutely. I, re I wrote a little piece on LinkedIn. I don't know if you saw it. Um, a few weeks ago, my husband went for a fairly routine <laughs> medical procedure and I went with him and it was at a facility I hadn't been to. And I was very shocked because they gave me one of those pagers like you would get mm -hmm. at, uh, you know, 
restaurant. And when his procedure was done, my pager buzzed. And then I could go pick him up like a sandwich. (laughs) 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 And I was really shocked. And of course, the waiting room, it was a very efficient process getting us into the waiting room and they took him back for the procedure very quickly. And then I was sitting there with all these people in their pagers waiting and every time someone's pager buzzed in that loud, annoying way, all of us who, you know, were stressed and waiting for our loved one basically leapt out of our seats. (laughs) And I was just like, Healthcare. It has the word care, care in it. Right, right. Care. Where was the caring? And, and right. yeah, and I, I see the article. I'll link to it on the blog post for this episode. But yeah, it's called Leaning Out Processes or Creating Service Excellence. And, you know, people, when they, the other card they'll play that is right next to patients are not cars, they'll say, well, we can't turn the hospital into a factory. And I say, well, absolutely not. We want to make the hospital the best, most caring healthcare organization it can be. That comes back to what you were saying in terms of sense of purpose and sense of service, right? That's exactly it. And think about the unpleasant consequences for the people who really need care and their families because it's unbelievably stressful for your family if your loved one is in a hospital, right? If we forget that our goal is to serve and care for Yeah. Right. Rather than lean out processes for internal efficiency. Yep. Yep. And so, boy, more people got that message and this book (laughs) is is going to help them. That would be uh, a really good thing. So as, as we as we wrap up here, what where can people learn more about the book about your work websites where, where do you recommend people come and find you other than finding you and following you on linkedin sure um people can find me at www.karenrossconsulting.com and my name has a y in it so k-a-r-y-n consulting.com um you can also Take a look for the book on our new website that we're just getting started, TWTSE, so Toyota Way to Service Excellence.com. And if you um, subscribe to that website as well, you will get a free preview of the first two chapters of the book. So anybody who has any questions, please do feel free to reach out. I've been very lucky because many people have helped me to learn and get to where I am, and I'm always happy to help others. Well, great. And writing a book is a fantastic way of doing that. So again, the title of the book is The Toyota Way to Service Excellence, Lean Transformation in uh, Service Organizations, uh, Jeff Liker and, and Karen Ross. Karen, it was such a pleasure uh, to be able to meet you and to, uh, to be able to chat with you today and uh, for having you on the podcast. Maybe we can do this again in the future. I would absolutely love it. Um, thank you so much for uh, inviting me. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.